Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 13 of Revelation, where we've been viewing the beasts, their meaning, and the rise of a revived Roman Empire. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Daniel would have known about the Babylonian Empire, but there's no way he would have known about these others. He wouldn't have known about them. And, 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 and he might have known maybe a little bit about the Medo-Persians because they were already kind of on the rise, but, but there's no way that he could ever predict the Greeks or, or known in detail to, to any of the others that came. You see, there are biblical scholars and folks in academia today who try to convince you and me that the book of Daniel was written, you know, wasn't written by Daniel alone, but it was written by multiple people over time. But the reason they try to say that isn't because the facts support that. The facts support the writing of this book by Daniel. It's his language. It's the things that Daniel says. The consistency is there. But they say these things because they have a hard time reconciling how Daniel could have known these things. They do the same thing with the other prophets. They do it with Isaiah where he talks about the prophecies that so specifically speak of Jesus. And they write them off because of this, but, but they, they don't offer any other evidence to support a different writer or a different later date or writing of the book other than their own view that it would have been impossible for Daniel to foresee such things in this detail. But here's the bottom line. None of this is hard to reconcile. Not if you truly know God. And not if you truly believe that his word is true and it's literal and that, that it is his word. That God has spoken these things. I suggest that even though a lot of these scholars and these critics might claim to know God, they really don't. And their skepticism is proof that they don't. The supernatural gets in the way for them because they can't relate to it. They don't know a supernatural God as we know because they don't have God's spirit living in them and, and opening the doors of their hearts to the reality of this stuff as God is doing in our hearts. Paul said it well in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're one of these people who are always trying to explain away these kinds of things, trying to make supernatural truths conform to some explanation that fits your human understanding of things, I don't care how much you might say you believe in God. I'd tell you that you probably don't know him. Not really. You don't have an understanding of him that comes from a personal relationship with him. Because if you did, although you might not understand all of the spiritual things being discussed or all of the spiritual implications, you'd still have a spiritual discernment that would cause you to see how these things are absolutely possible with God. You'd have spirit-powered discernment that would make these things possible in your mind, and you would be, wouldn't be driven to explain them away. The very fact that you're trying to explain these things away is an indicator that the Spirit of God isn't at work in this regard in your life. Daniel wrote these things at the prompting of, of, and revelation of a God who lives outside the domain of time, and he knew it. A God who sees the future as well as the past simultaneously. Just as he declares of himself in the book of Isaiah, he says this in Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. Remember this, 
and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. None of this is hard to accept as truth and reality if you know God. God knew and he revealed to Daniel. Now Daniel reveals to us and we look back and say, whoa, look at that. He talked about these kingdoms that we now have the ability to look back and see and realize actually existed. Hmm. So these three animals that Daniel saw and described correlate exactly to what John is now seeing and describing to us here in Revelation 13 and verse 2. But as we noted earlier, there's a difference in the order of Daniel's account versus John's account. Why? Well, because, you know, again, Daniel sees the order as lion, bear, leopard. John sees the order as leopard, bear, lion because of where these two men stood in regard to the timeline of history as they recorded these things. It's the same animals representing the same thing, but Daniel's order is based on his forward look into history. He's looking forward from his vantage point, standing in the era of Babylon and looking forward. He sees the order, the sequence of empires as the lion, the Babylonian empire, the bear, the Medo-Persian empire, the leopard, the Greek empire. But from where John is standing, he's doing what? He's looking backwards in time. He's looking backwards in time and describing the sequence of empires in reverse order. From his vantage point in time, he looks back over the empires that have existed and orders them from the last to the first, describing the leopard first, the Greek empire, and the bear, the Medo-Persian empire, then furthest back, the lion, the Babylonian empire. But make no mistake, despite this inversed order, they are both seeing and they are both describing the same things using the same symbolic language. Yet, as we also noted in his description, Daniel went on to describe a fourth beast, a kingdom that he gives a little bit more attention to than the other three that he just described. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 19 of Daniel chapter 7. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. As Daniel turns his attention to this fourth beast, he, he begins by describing how it's different from the other three. There's something different about it. He says this one, man, this one's exceedingly dreadful. And this one has teeth of iron and, and nails of bronze. And he describes how it utterly crushes and, and it breaks everything and everyone in its path. And again, this is incredibly similar to the explanation he gave in, in the interpretation they gave to Nebuchadnezzar's dream earlier about the statue. And although there's some difference in regard to the actual elements being described, it is at the same time a description which involves multiple components, right? Just like the statue's feet in that earlier prophecy were described as iron and clay, and then the ten toes made of iron and clay attached to the legs of feet made of iron. This beast is a composition of iron and bronze. He says teeth of iron and nails of bronze. And like the interpretation he gave in Daniel 2, he says that this fourth beast, this fourth kingdom will be different from all the others in terms of how it plays out. 
Now, there's no question that this fourth beast that Daniel is seeing and describing is the same as the empire he described in regard to the legs and feet made of iron in Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the statue. It's the Roman Empire. This fourth empire is the same one. It's the Roman Empire. But just like the interpretation he gave in Daniel 2, here also Daniel sees and he describes some form of morphing that takes place into the same empire, into something just a little bit different in the future. Because look at what he goes on to say in verse 20. He says, And the ten horns, note that, the ten horns, that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Here Daniel makes reference to ten horns associated with this fourth beast. The exact same description that John gave us in Revelation 13 and verse 1 associated with the beast. We concluded last week that these ten horns associated with the beast, with Antichrist, represented a ten-nation confederation that will rise in the final days of human history and give themselves over to Antichrist's rule during the tribulation period. We also noted last week that the ten toes on the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 correlated to these same ten horns. And in his dream, the ten toes were an extension a reformation of sorts, a reemergence of sorts of the Roman Empire in the form of a ten-nation confederation that will join together in the last days and submit themselves to Antichrist's authority and rule. Now here again, in this description, Daniel gives us of the fourth beast, a beast that clearly symbolizes the Roman Empire. Daniel sees, again, ten horns associated with the clear implication is that there will be a mutation, a morphing, an extension of this empire at some point in the future. Also note that Daniel describes another horn that he sees rising up in the midst of the ten horns, a horn that represents a powerful leader. Remember, that's what a horn represents. In biblical literature, authority, leadership, right? And here he sees a single one rising up that has power over them. And it's a powerful leader that he tells us that one's one's appearance, his appearance will be greater than the others, the others that are leading him, those other horns. He describes this horn or leader as being pridefully defiant in all of his ways, described by the eyes and mouth, which he says speaks pompous words. And once again, Daniel is describing Antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13, rising to power over these ten horns, the same ten toes of Daniel 2 that represent the leadership of these other ten nations who will submit themselves and their nations that they lead to his authority and rule when he comes. I also note that in this description given us here in Daniel 7 and verse 20, Daniel indicates that at some point during Antichrist's reign, three of these nations will drop out. Look at what he says in Daniel 20 again, uh, Daniel 7, verse 20. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Now this has been the subject of a lot of speculation amongst Christians and who study end-time prophecies, but we simply do not know what this entails because God doesn't give us the specifics of it. For now, all we can conclude based on this verse is at some point there will be a change to this ten-nation confederation and, and that Antichrist will be controlling and three of those leaders or nations for some reason will fall out of that confederation. But what is clear 
is that Daniel is describing something that's going to come out of and be loosely associated with this fourth beast, with the Roman Empire. And it's ultimately going to be controlled by Antichrist when he comes. Look on to what Daniel says next in verse 21. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Here's further proof that this fourth beast that Daniel is describing encompasses something far more than just the Roman Empire as it once existed. Because in these verses, Daniel says that this leader, depicted by the horn, will make war against the saints of God and prevail over them, and that he'll do it until the time comes for the saints to possess the kingdom. Now, this cannot simply be a reference to, the, to Rome's persecution of the church. And Rome did persecute the church. But it can't be that fulfillment there because that lasted only until what? Till Constantine rose to power. Once Constantine became the, the Caesar of the Roman Empire, everything changed. The persecution stopped over Rome. I'd argue a corruption took place in the church at that point as the church merged with the state in that regard. But you know what? It ended. So it can't be talking about that. And since then, Christians absolutely have faced persecution, but not at the hands of this fourth beast, not at the hands of Rome that Daniel says that this horn will rise from. Now, Daniel's describing something in the future. He's not talking about something that we look back on as past as the Roman Empire. He's describing Antichrist's war against believers during the tribulation, during the time when, when the extension of this fourth beast, a revived Roman Empire, under the control of the beast, the horn, Antichrist, will exist and make war against God's people who will be living and coming to faith in Jesus during this horrendous period of time time in which Revelation 11, 7 and, and Revelation 13, 7 similarly described. In Revelation 11, 7, it says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. In Revelation 13, 7, it tells us it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. We'll deal with that passage a little bit more next week. But here in Daniel chapter 7, he's describing this same war. He's talking about this same thing. It's a war that Antichrist, not some previous Caesar of past Roman history, will wage against God's people, the Jews, and against those who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation period. So even though this fourth beast speaks symbolically of this fourth empire in the progression beginning with Babylon, Daniel clearly makes a shift, and he's talking about some future form of this empire, a form that will emerge under Antichrist's rule. But look at what else Daniel goes on to tell us in verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the others and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. Daniel says that this fourth kingdom will be different than anything the world has ever seen before. Different than all the other empires that ever come and gone. Different because of the way it'll mutate like this. And different because of the intense evil empowerment behind it that'll be associated with it as this will be the one kingdom that Satan himself will eventually assume complete control of through this man that the Bible calls Antichrist. Look on to verse 24. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. If you think I was speculating on the horns, here it makes clear that I'm not. It's talking about people. 
right? These ten horns are the ten kings who shall rise from this kingdom. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. Here Daniel tells us that while these ten other national leaders, these ten horns will be ordinary men, this other horn, Antichrist, he's going to be different. He's going to be different. He'll be different because unlike these other men who will most certainly be under the influence of Satan, none of them will literally be possessed by him. As scripture elsewhere, elsewhere tells us, the Antichrist will. Look on to verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and a half time. Daniel now describes in detail how when Antichrist rises, he'll come as a boldly defiant man. And this is going to be a guy who's just going to be with his words, with his mouth, yakety, yakety, yak against God. But more than that, he'll defy the world's laws. He'll defy the world's laws, changing laws, he says, and even attempting to change time. It's interesting to note. Historians tell us that those involved in the French Revolution, anybody study a lot of history, you know? If you go back and look at the French Revolution, you're going to find that in their ultimate defiance of the French rule, what they attempted to do was change the calendar when they took power, the revolution. They tried to replace the seven-day week with a 10-day week. I don't know about you. I couldn't handle a 10-day week. That's too long to Saturday, you know, but a 10-day week. And then they declared the year of the revolution to be year one. So this is nothing new. And Daniel indicates that when Antichrist comes, He's going to show this similar kind of defiance. He tells us that, that he's even going to be more defiant because what he's going to do is he's not just going to defy laws and systems of the world, but ultimately his defiance will ultimately be directed against God himself. Against God himself. He tells us he'll come speaking pompous and blasphemous words against God. In other words, he'll trivialize God. He'll mock God. He'll try to unseat God with his words. And again, we see that spirit of Antichrist at work in our world today. On multiple levels, it's happening all around us. Look how people in our world brazenly speak out against God anymore, just bashing God and and the things of God at every opportunity. They blaspheme him, not just by using his name in vain and casual conversation, which used to be the way it was, which was bad enough, but they deliberately mock him and they belittle him and they defy him with their words. A number of years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but it was back when I taught this before, and it was fresh at that time. But you guys know the comedian Kathy Griffin? But Kathy Griffin was receiving a primetime Emmy Award, and this is what she said. A lot of people come up here and thank Jesus for this award. I want you to know that no one had less to do with this award than Jesus. This award is my God now. Yeah, we go to that, right? Well, she's probably right. He didn't give her that award, you know? He didn't give her that award. That's her carnal pursuits. But that's not the point. The point is the, the, the mockery of it all. Now, think about that then and what we're seeing today. It's even worse. Even worse. These kinds of statements, these kind of attitudes, they're shocking to us. But the Bible says when Antichrist comes, this will be nothing compared to what he'll be saying. Also note that Daniel tells us that his greatest defiance of God won't be, his, be reflected in these things, but it'll be reflected in the persecution of God's people, the saints. In this verse, Daniel tells us that for a time, times, and a half time, he's going he's to be allowed by God to persecute the saints. Quite literally, in the original language, it, it, it says he's going to wear them out. He's going to be coming at them so furiously, so continuously, that they are just totally worn out as he does this. And again, a times, times, and a half times is how long? 
Three and a half years, right? From the point that we know in Thessalonians, Antichrist will walk into that temple, declare himself to be God, and he's going to turn. He's going to turn in that moment. You see, the exact same period that we see there. But make no mistake about it. No matter what Antichrist might believe about his power, it's limited. It is limited, and it's going to end right on schedule. Look at what Daniel tells us in verse 26 and 27. But the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Anybody want to say amen to that? Amen. After the darkness of Antichrist, you know. Daniel says that he sees and he describes the exact same thing that John will be taking us to when we get to John or to Revelation chapter 19. He's describing the day when Jesus Christ will personally appear and personally intervene, delivering his people, putting an end to Antichrist's reign on the earth and establishing his own in that day, permitting, you know, permanent kingdom, one that's going to last forever, he says. Praise God. What a day that's going to be. Praise the Lord for that. A day when evil is going to end. The blasphemy is going to end. A day when God will vindicate his people, you know, and, 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 and establish all of us in his kingdom. Praise God. But do you see now how all of what Daniel has just described in Daniel 7 correlates to and, and really sheds light on everything we're looking at here in Revelation 13? I hope you do. hope I didn't lose you. Look again at Revelation 13. We're wrapping this up here, but Revelation 13 Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having ten heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. It's the exact same thing being described here in Revelation 13. John is seeing and describing Antichrist and his kingdom rising. And like Daniel, he's seeing and he's describing the kingdoms of the world that will historically come before Antichrist kingdom comes, but in reverse order. The leopard being Greeks, the bear being Medo-Persians, and the lion being the Babylonians. And even though in this list John doesn't specifically refer to a fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, in the same way that Daniel does, he knows it exists. You know why? Because he's living in that empire. He's living in the fourth empire at the time he's writing down this revelation that Jesus has given to him. In fact, it's the fourth kingdom, Rome, that has exiled him to this island where he's writing this revelation that Jesus has given to him. And like Daniel, he too sees Antichrist emerging from and forming his own deviation of that kingdom. A kingdom which he says that Satan himself will give him the authority and the power to rule over. Look again at verse 2. He says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. As we talked about before, the dragon is a symbolic reference to Satan, the serpent of the garden. And as such, John is saying here that Satan, who will be at the heart, he's going to be at the heart of everything that Antichrist will be doing and at the very core of his power that he'll have. And even though Antichrist, the man, will be in the spotlight, he'll be fully and completely empowered. And I will suggest you eventually possessed, maybe even reanimated. We'll talk about that next time by Satan himself. He'll be the satanic mimic 
of Jesus, just as Jesus was God in the flesh, so too Antichrist will literally be coming as Satan in the flesh. But he won't be Jesus. He won't be the Messiah that the world is, is even now longing for, and he most certainly will not be the Messiah that the Jews are waiting expectantly for, but he will be an evil imposter who won't be the Messiah of the world. He won't be coming to bring life. He'll be coming to bring death and destruction to this planet, and God will allow him to do this for a season, but only for a season, as a part of his judgment upon this fallen world, but only for a season. Now, I want to wrap this up with a quick comment. You know, there is, and I mentioned this last week, there is a teaching today in Christianity that talks about that the kingdom of God is being built on the earth today through his church. That we already possess the earth, that we possess the, the keys to the kingdom here on the earth, and we need to establish the kingdom on the earth. This passage alone tells you that's not true. So what does it say? The dragon gave him his power, his throne, his great authority. How can he do that if we have control of this now? Does that mean that Jesus has not won the battle for this planet? No, Jesus has won the battle for this planet, but he has not taken possession of it. And before he takes possession of it, he still allows Satan to do what Satan has long done. Do you remember the temptation of Jesus when he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple? And what does he say to him? All this can be yours. I'll give it to you, Jesus, if you'll just fall down and worship me. You see? Jesus refused it. Antichrist won't. Antichrist won't. That same offer will be made to Antichrist, whether he knows it or not, and he'll take it. And Satan, because God will allow him still that control, will be able to give him that authority, but only for a season, because ultimately Jesus is the owner. Jesus is the one who has won the victory already. And there is coming a day when he, not us, the church, there is a coming a day when he will lay claim to all that belongs to him. Taking the title deed of the earth itself, right? And opening it up and laying claim to what rightfully belongs to him. But that day has not come yet. And this guy will rise to power before that. And you and I, we're not going to be here to see him. But we can warn people as they look at current events today and say, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Can I take you on a Bible study? Can I show you some things? Would you be willing to listen to a teaching on this and hear what somebody laid out for us this past Sunday? And, and hear the progression of empires that prophets foretold would come and of another one that's still to come? And what the hope for you can be in the face of that evil that's coming and how you can find escape as I have? See, God has placed us here for this time, and he's showing us things so we'll understand. And our understanding becomes clearer and clearer with each passing day. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.